From PRX and Transom, this is the Sound School Podcast with the backstory to great audio storytelling. It's good to know you're out there listening. I'm Rob Rosenthal. I'm the host and producer of the show. A few times in the past, I've produced episodes I call Darts and Laurels. The laurels are accolades for work that I consider exceptional. I'll gush about the writing or the production values or the structure or the reporting, something I think is really top-notch. As for the darts, well, I get kind of grumpy critiquing stories for poor editorial and production choices. For instance, an example of a dart would be producing a documentary series about a woman and her father with dementia and never letting us hear the father. It's like the dad and his illness are voiceless. Or when hosts of kids' show talk like, I mean, what is that voice adults use when talking to kids or reading to them? So loud, so sing-songy. Jeez, I'm crow. Kids aren't stupid. Don't talk to them like they are. See, I get cranky with the darts. And so I was thinking I'd put together another Darts and Laurels episode. They're popular. But I don't want to feel cranky today, so I'll leave Critical Rob in a box up on a shelf, and I'll pull him down sometime later when you least expect it. Instead, today I've got nothing but laurels, including two for a recent This American Life episode. But first this. Imagine stepping across a border and discovering that reproductive rights you once took for granted are now a crime. For millions of Ukrainians, that discovery happened when they fled the war in their home country and set foot here in Poland. Ukraine has very liberal abortion laws. In Poland, it's almost entirely illegal. But while this is NPR's Ari Shapiro. He's reporting from Poland. It, and that's just one of the reasons NPR and Ari deserve a laurel. Ari's using shoe leather to be old school about it. Normally, Ari hosts All Things Considered, the nightly news program on NPR. But instead of producing yet another two-way interview with a guest, which is all too common on NPR, Ari's out in the world with his microphone. Let's hear a little more. At the Medica border crossing, there are bright blue porta-potties for Ukrainian refugees who've just arrived in Poland. And someone has taped flyers inside the doors of these toilets. They offer information in Ukrainian and Russian. My colleague is reading aloud. It says, you are not alone. The card has phone numbers for a gynecology hotline. There are logos for Polish reproductive rights groups that connect with a network of women's organizations across Europe. Members of these groups take real risks to help refugees and others access reproductive services that they would have no trouble getting in Ukraine. What's also thrilling about this reporting is that the story is 11 minutes long. That's a hell of a lot of airtime on NPR. With that amount of space, the story breathes, and Ari can take his time and provide lots of scenes and context and character development. And don't get me wrong, I'm not an adherent to some school of thought that says longer stories are better. They aren't inherently better. They have to earn the time. This story earns it. But aside from the length and the in-the-field reporting, the real reason I want to toss NPR a laurel is the choice they made around translation. Here's the first moment we hear from a primary character in the story. Oksana Litvinenko asked to meet us at our hotel in Warsaw, not at her home or office, because anti-abortion protesters have targeted her personally. And so she takes precautions, my colleague interprets as she speaks. Of course. Even they were coming to my daughter's school. 
Ona jeszcze miała wtedy 12 lat. She was 12 back then. I szukali, my z córką mamy różne nazwiska. And we have different last names with I my daughter. to ją uratowało. And that keep her safe. At first listen, that may not seem worthy of a laurel, right? It's just someone talking, telling a story. But that's the thing. We get to hear Oksana and their incredible voice for a long time. At least in comparison to translations and other NPR stories, typically what happens is this. A non-English speaking voice comes in for a few words. The voice fades down and under while someone translates. Like this short clip from another story about the war in Ukraine. There was shooting. Not only the tanks were shooting, I also saw some incoming missiles above the city. Heard explosions, the sounded just like the crackle of fireworks. Why is that typically the approach to translations? Well, first of all, time. In a four-minute story like that one, which is a common length for stories on NPR, there's really not enough time to let someone speak at length in a language other than English. And second, NPR's listeners are largely English-speaking, so it makes sense to cater to that audience. Why let someone talk at length when most listeners can't understand what's being said? And so those are the arguments in favor of hearing only a few words and then fading them down. In recent years, though, there's been a reaction to that practice. People argue that so much is communicated non-verbally, such as character and emotion, that when you fade down someone quickly and talk over them, a lot is lost. And it's for that very reason why the tape of Oksana is so refreshing. Just listen to her. She lives in her voice. Litvinenko is Ukrainian and has lived in Poland for 18 years. In a country that has targeted LGBTQ people, she wears a watch with a rainbow wristband. Her hair is cut into a short buzz. She has a day job, which gives her access to the people she helps through her volunteer work. <laughs> Definitely. She is a Ukrainian-Polish interpreter. And so when refugees need to end a pregnancy, they confide in her. But she says they rarely ask outright. They use euphemisms. They are trying to describe it in other way. They are asking for uh, pills to make period come faster. Oh my, that pause. The pause. <laughs> the weight Oksana carries is in that pause. No words could convey it. Do I think that amount of non-English should be the standard on NPR? No. Could NPR stand to let a little more play, even when the tape might not be super compelling? Yeah, sure. If for no other reason than to allow someone to establish themselves and be heard. In general, let the tape be the guide. If something like that pause would be lost by fading a voice down too quickly, give it more time. Thank you, Ari and NPR, for letting Oksana speak. A laurel for excellent choices around translation. Okay, on this episode of Sound School, like I said, nothing but laurels. And let me segue over to This American Life, and let me start by saying, wow. A recent episode of TAL is a master class in audio storytelling, specifically endings and context. Before I play a couple of clips as examples, let me lay out the premise of the show. When journalists write a story about the victim of a crime, the initial reports will often provide the name of the victim the age of the victim, and a detail about their life. In fact, the name of the TAL episode I'm lauding is Name, Age, Detail. 
The detail, by the way, might be a sentence or two about the victim's work or a pastime they enjoyed or maybe an accomplishment. Later stories might include more information, but generally speaking, name, age, detail is a common starting place, followed by a lot of details about the crime itself. Here's Ira Glass, the host of This American Life, with an example of a detail. Pearl Young, the 77-year-old grandmother, taught Sunday school and ran a food pantry at the church for decades. The Pearl Ira is referring to was one of the 10 people killed at Topps Grocery in Buffalo in May of this year. A white supremacist, a teenager, was arrested and charged with the murders. As Ira notes in the episode, name, age, detail is not nearly enough to capture the life of a person or their character. In this case, what made Pearl, Pearl. Big things. Like the special connections she had with teenagers. How they'd bond with her and talk to her about what was really going on with them. Little things. Like how her world changed when she learned the computer and started mildly trolling her grown children on Facebook. For all of us, too big to fit into a sentence. To really describe and dig into the lives of those 10 people, This American Life dedicated the whole show, an hour, to all the people who died that day. On the podcast version of the show, they went longer, an hour and 17 minutes. When I finished listening to the podcast version, I couldn't believe that much time had passed. And let's start with Celestine Cheney, 65 years old. The one uh, sentence description of her was uh, something like, she attended Fosdick Maston Vocational High School, which was a prestigious school for girls in Buffalo, where she studied to be a seamstress, went on to jobs in Buffalo companies that made suits and baseball caps. Though um, in reading about her, we saw a thing where one of her grandchildren, a 25-year-old, uh, Kayla Jones, said her grandmother was her best friend. They were really close. Somebody that she can confide in of her homemade margaritas. They'd party together. Writer Brittany Goose was interested in that relationship and talked to Kayla. Kayla Jones says most of the words you'd use to describe a grandma apply to hers, Celestine Cheney. She could sew, was active in church, and loved to host. The family would often get together at Celestine's place for parties. Like, real parties. <laughs> grandma had a bar. Like, she used that, like, at her house. After Iris topped to the show, here's one of the first things you notice about this episode. It's not the usual crew of TAL reporters. The show asked several Black writers to record interviews, research, write stories, and narrate. The first was written by Brittany Luce. She's the co-host of the podcast For Colored Nerds. The thing Kayla connected most with her grandma about, they both like to look good. Nails, hair, clothes. Celestine refused to leave the house looking anything less than immaculate. She and Kayla shared that in common. Of course, they had different ideas about what immaculate looked like. Kayla says her grandma would tease her for showing too much skin. Celestine preferred to shop at Kohl's and Burlington Co. Factory. She always at the nail shop whenever she needed to fill. She wore acrylics. So mm. never nothing too long. She's always like the oval. Like, I can say like short, not too short length. Mm-hmm. And she got the little, always used to have like the back in the day nail tech. Like, you know, back in the day, the styles we used to get, like she still got those, <laughs> like with the little lines and dots and stuff like the that. The lines and dots are called palm tree. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. we used to wear in the early 2000s. She, she still gets that style. Not a lot happens in this story. It's not at all a classic plot driven, this happens, then this happens, then this happens, moment of reflection. TAL-type story. Instead, for several minutes, the listener is immersed in anecdotes about daily life and the love a grandchild has for their grandmother. When Kayla was still a kid, Celestine went through a lot with her health. She battled breast cancer and suffered three brain aneurysms. 
When Celestine began to lose her hair, Kayla started to style it for her. They took a piece of her skull out, so I'm not sure if they was working on the brain or something like that. So she had a little dent in it. And I know for sure, like, that's the worst part about it that she hated was that. And, of course, because her hair had to get cut off. So, like, in that part where the dent was, the hair fairly, like, it didn't grow as much. Mm-hmm. So, like, when I used to, like, like sometimes she will wear her real hair and I have to curl it. Like, she was just like, can you please just make sure, like, you cover that up? Because she, she genuinely did not like that. What was it like, like, back then to be able to care for your grandmother in that way? I didn't really like it because I know she didn't like it. And I know she felt some type of way about it. It's just sad to. So I just did whatever I can to help out because I know if it was me, I, I would hate it too. Kayla, the granddaughter, she eventually went to hair school and she made wigs for her grandmother, including one with a few blue streaks. Even though that wasn't Celestine's style, she still wore the wig. It was a way for the grandmother to say, I see you. After Celestine was killed, Kayla prepared her grandmother for the funeral. And this is the part I want to point out, the ending. Earlier, I mentioned that this episode of TAL was a masterclass in endings. Well, listen. Did you do her hair for the funeral as well? Yeah, I got her a wig, like a short uh, bob. It was a front bang wig. And then I had one of my best friends do her makeup. And then we had matching outfits. So I had, we had the same suit on. Like, exactly the same outfit. Just... Same suit, same undershirt. Do you think your Do you think your grandmother would be honored by that? By you all being like looking so much alike on that day? Oh, of course. I made sure she went out like she looked really cute. Like she looked really good, and because they had to do a lot of, like a lot of uh, they, they had to reconstruct the side of her face. So I had to just make sure like we could get her looking just like you know what I mean to herself as possible. But she looked really good, like really good. When we're little. The first and often only people to care for our hair are family. Mothers, aunties, sisters, cousins, and grandmothers. We spend long mornings between their knees or at kitchen tables with combs and brushes next to our cereal bowls before our days even begin. Their palms kiss our scalps, allowing us to greet an unkind world with a halo of love. And sometimes, when we grow up, we have the honor of returning the gesture. What a graceful turn. Elegant, smooth, effortless. Those four sentences take what is a funny and touching collection of anecdotes and remembrances and elevates them. Celestine's life transforms from the everyday to the universal. Celestine's life is all of our lives. This episode is also exemplary for the way the writers bring in context. Brittany Luce did so briefly in the story of Celestine. When the grandmother spoke about how Celestine dressed and presented herself in public, Brittany wrote in a moment of context. Celestine reminds me a lot of my own mom. They're both loving grandmothers, church ladies who like to party, and they both love a full look. They were also both born in the 1950s. Many Black women of that generation were taught that chipped nails, undone hair, or wrinkly clothes could widen the gap between you and a job, a home loan, or basic respect. Beauty was a joy, but it was also a shield. When producing a profile of someone, it's important to keep in mind the larger forces at play in their lives. 
I sometimes think of them as tectonic plates, the massive pieces of earth we stand on. Only in this case, instead of earth, I mean history and race and gender, class and the like. We're touched by these every day. The best example of this in the episode also happens to be what is probably the best piece of tape I've heard all year. It's a soliloquy of sorts. Kessie Lehman produced a piece for this episode. Kessie writes books and essays, both fiction and nonfiction, and he also teaches at Rice University in Texas. Geraldine Chapman Talley, Jerry by her friends and family. She was the seventh of nine children and graduated from East High School in 1977. She was an excellent cook and baker. She had a daughter, a son, and a stepdaughter. Not long after learning she was about to become a grandmother for the first time, Chapman Talley was murdered in a top supermarket in Buffalo, New York. Here's the part that felt most familiar and ultimately most terrifying about this American story. Jerry Chapman Talley was born in Grove Hill, Alabama, and moved to Buffalo when she was 11. That move, Grove Hill, Alabama, to Buffalo, New York. I heard that, and I had the same reaction as my friend, Zandria Robinson, who, like me, left the Deep South for the North. Zandria was raised right up the road. I'm from Jackson, Mississippi, and she's from Memphis, Tennessee. I mean, my immediate thought was just, we went all the way up there just to die the same way that we were trying not to die. Wow. I wanted to talk to Zandria because she wrote the book Chocolate Cities with Dr. Marcus Hunter. They drew the map on black migratory paths in America. Zandria is a professor of African-American studies at Georgetown, so that's Dr. Robinson to y'all. Along with providing the details of Jerry Talley's life, Kessie and Zandria talked quite a bit about the Great Migration, though I'm kind of curious why they didn't use that term. Anyway, the Great Migration was a massive move by Black Americans from the South to the North in the 20th century. You know, in my father's case, I'm leaving Glendora, Mississippi, yeah. and I'm going to Memphis. Yes. That is for somebody who lived the county, two counties over from where Emmett Till was murdered, that's a big move. It's huge. It's a huge move. So to imagine the Chapmans saying, all right, we're going from the bottom to the top, that's symbolic, it's geographical, it's cognitive, and it meant that... Miss Jerry ended up with a different kind of life than she would have had in Alabama. In the piece, Kessie quotes what Jerry's family said about her life and the move north. I'm not sure why we don't hear from them directly, but that's a minor point. Kessie and Zandria talk about life in the south and speculate some on how a move north may have impacted Jerry. Then Kessie poses a question to Zandria that stopped me in my tracks. I actually cried listening to Zandria's answer. You write a lot about what we are owed in life as folks from black folks from the deep south and what kinds of I'm interested in you can talk to me about what kinds of death are we owed when we leave home or are carried from home for a different kind of freedom. People are always going to talk about this repair and reparation and whatnot. What kind of deaths are we owed whether we stay home in the deep south and particularly in this situation? Whether we go to these corners of the nation that might be a little bit different or a lot different from our southern homes. I think we're owed the death of our choosing. Yes. And that might seem hyperbolic because, of course, 
God and all of that. <laughs> but I would say that of all the things, I would hope that people would be able to be peaceful, quiet, surrounded by music, love, and family chosen and otherwise, and whoever else they wanted to be there. Yes. Being able to move into the light in ways of their own choosing. That's what this country owes to all black people as reparations. To be able to choose, but this manner? Yes, to be lynched. That's all the way up in the corner next to Canada. Yeah. And I know what America is. Right. I wasn't like, oh, my God, this happened up north. Right, right, <laughs> Obviously. Right, right, right. I know what America is. Yes. I've always known this. Yet, to go so far and then to not have a choice, to have that choice made for you in that way, that's not acceptable. To take people like this, and I think that being able to choose our exits, choose which way we're going to go off the stage, is so essential. Geraldine Chapman Talley did not get to choose how she left Buffalo. Frankly, I'm not sure what to say after that. It's so remarkable, so powerful. While every story in the This American Life episode takes a brief moment to touch a tectonic plate, I think this story does just that for the entire episode. It's a kind of keystone story, putting all the others in context. There's one more aspect of this story I'd like to highlight. There's a rule for interviewers. Don't talk. Just keep quiet. Let the person you're interviewing say their piece free and clear of the interviewer saying things like, mm-hmm, oh yeah, oh, you don't say, and, and things like that. They're distractions. I am so pleased This American Life left in Kessie's responses in Zandria's answer. They didn't interfere. They added value. Those utterances from Kessie made me feel like I was in church, radio church, which is an honor above Laurel for This American Life and the episode Name, Age, Detail. If you are a longtime listener to this show, thank you. If you're a newcomer, well, welcome. And I invite you to check out our archive of shows. The Sound School podcast until very recently was called How Sound. Same show, different name. There are over 275 episodes of How Sound, and they're all sitting right there in your podcast feed or over at transom.org. Have at it. And while you're at Transom, visit the tools page. It's for your tech nerdy self. Wondering about loudness? Need a mic recommendation? What about recording using online services such as Riverside? tools page at transom.org. Genevieve Sponsler at PRX and Jay Allison at Transom review my scripts. Thank you both. 
thanks also to WCAI in Woods Hole, Massachusetts for letting me record in their studios. I'm Rob Rosenthal. Thanks for listening. transom.org.